Revelations chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be put to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that the one, no one knows the name except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We find ourselves in the book of Revelation talking about the third church that John writes to. Now, who is giving John this revelation? Jesus. Jesus. All right. Good. Just to make sure we're all on the same page here. So this isn't John's revelation. This is the revelation of? Okay. So we're going to go back to, I just want to revisit this. Um, I love it when people come and are visiting with us and uh, learning that, hey, we're studying the book of Revelation, so they want to come and hear about it. And so it's really, really, really important for you to know our starting point and our surrounding point and the point of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ, okay? And it's very amazing that as Jesus identifies and talks about these seven churches, he reveals a specific aspect about himself at the beginning of each one of these letters that is important for these churches to know. I am a child of God. We just sang that. God wants us to be completely identified in him. And so each one of these characteristics or attributes of God that is revealed at the beginning of these letters to the churches is extremely important because we're to be identified in Christ. And so as he reveals himself, we want to know these things so that we have a proper identification of who we are. This next letter here is to to the church in Pergamum. We're making our way around the crescent there. From the island of Patmos, Paul has written first to the church in Ephesus, last week to the church in Smyrna, and this week we're studying the church in Pergamum. We look at the church in Pergamum, and it was the capital city of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. 
and the year 133 BC, before Christ, Pergamum became the capital of the Roman province of Asia. The city is 45 miles north of Smyrna, and it is built on a high rock outcropping, a mutual, a natural fortress. Okay? This is an artist's rendering of it. It's very interesting there. You can kind of see the steps off kind of in the center to the left a little bit. That was actually an amphitheater that sat 10,000 people and was built on the side of a cliff. And the stage, if you, you didn't want to take too many steps backwards off the stage, because it wouldn't have been a little fall, it was a fall off of a cliff. That amphitheater is still present there in Asia Minor. It's fantastic, incredible what was built. It had become by the time of the first century the center of emperor worship in the Roman world. There are many impressive temples in Pergamum to Zeus, to Athena, to Nikephoids, to Dionysus, but the city was most famous for its temples to the Asclepios, which was the god of medicine that had a serpent wrapped around a staff. This is the church in Pergamum. And this is the setting to which John writes. This church in this place where there all these false gods are worshipped. It is the birthplace that is the high place of the emperor worship. You understand if this was written to during Diocletian's reign, Diocletian once again sent out an edict throughout the Roman Empire that emperor worship was the one to be worshipped. He was to be venerated most. And so in here, when it talks about the one Satan's dwelling place, it's quite literally understanding and pointing towards this was the place where emperor worship was taking place. And he's equating, not saying that the emperor is Satan, but he is a type of, and let me use that word here, a type of antichrist. Demanding worship, stealing worship from God. Anything that steals, any person that's calling themselves to steal worship from God is anti-against the worship of the one true God. What does it look like for this church to be placed in the midst of such a very difficult circumstance and situation? So studying this text, there's one word that stood out to me, and it's used three different times in here. And it's a Greek word called kurteo, which means to embrace or adhere to strongly. The author here is calling out for the church in Pergamon to embrace, to adhere to strongly, Jesus. In fact, he, at the beginning of this passage, is, is encouraging them and saying that you have done this. You have held fast to my name and do not deny faith in me. What does it look like to embrace or hold fast to something? As I was thinking of an imagery to, to share with you this morning, one came into my head. Um, some of you know I was a chaplain in the army. And I deployed with 520th Infantry Battalion, Striker Infantry, to Bakuba, Iraq, in OIF 9 and 10. 
I wanted to, most of the officers tried to do this. We wanted to ensure our soldiers got a chance to go home on R&R before we did. And so we kind of made a rule amongst the officers and the staff that none of us went on R&R until our, all of our subordinates went. And so that meant that my R&R took place about nine months into the deployment. Things were hard for my beautiful bride, being home alone. We had adopted Catherine. She'd only been home a little over a year before I left. Fryrak. In fact, I got to stay home an extra 10 days because we got, I had to get Catherine out of the hospital because she just went through a spinal cord detethering right before I deployed. Elijah and I, were, we've always been really close because when I was going through seminary, Elijah was in those formative young little toddler years, and he would go play cars, and while I was doing a paper, then he'd come and sit on my lap, and we'd talk for a little bit, and then he wanted to make sure everything was okay, and then he went back to playing cars. And so Elijah and I were always pretty tight, but when I deployed, Elijah's anger started to roll up. And Ethan, being my firstborn type A analytical engineer type son, said, I'll just take over for dad and, and tried to tell mom what to do. So mom's managing the house, right? While dad's deployed downrange. Well, we surprised the kids of when I was coming home for R&R. And uh, they were in school when Christy picked me up from SeaTac, and so we drove to their schools. And Ethan, being who Ethan is, found out, of course, ahead of time. But he kept it a secret from his siblings. Um, and so I got to go into Elijah's classroom and snuck up behind him. And from that position there to the second position, he literally leapt into my arms. And he embraced me. Full on wholehearted, nothing held back embrace. And it was an embrace where he, he held on to me strongly. One of the things with our daughters that has been part of the, the journey process of doing the attachment and going through attachment because kids that are adopted into a family don't just most of the time just naturally ad- attach. And it's been progressive and it's, it's happening now all the time and consistently and regularly that my daughters get up in the morning and they, I'm making breakfast or doing something in the kitchen and they come in now and they wrap their hands around me with open hands and hug me in the morning. Before they used to, you know, like have like balled up fists or side, like it was really weird, awkward looking hug. It was just kind of like that. But now it's this embrace. He's telling this church in Pergamum, you have embraced me. You have wrapped your arms around me. You're adhering to me strongly. It's not just this flippant, like, I believe in Jesus. You're clinging to Jesus, and you get why they're clinging to him. Here they are in this place of emperor worship. Like, if you don't worship the emperor, you're going to die. 
like worshiping Zeus and all these and, and, and temple prostitutes and, and, and all this horrific stuff and these festivals, these festivals that would have gone on, idolatrous festivals, worshiping these false gods. And here, in the midst of all of that, and these huge, I mean, we go back to this, I mean, look at the architecture. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it magnificent? But so much of it was dedicated to the worship of false idols. And here is this church in the midst of this. They don't got a building. They don't have a big place where they can put a sign out and say, come join us this Sunday. This is our gathering time. They've got their houses. And oftentimes meeting in secret. Because if they were openly meet, oftentimes they could have been killed for their faith like those in the church of Smyrna. Like here they are clinging to God. Holding fast to him. Their identity is completely in Jesus Christ. And it's impacting and affecting every area of their life. It's what a beautiful, beautiful picture. As we think about it, clinging to our identity and who God is. Clinging to him so much that Antipas, and who is Antipas? We don't, he is the only, this is the only place he's mentioned in all of scripture. Early church history tradition has it that Antipas was an elder overseeing the church in Pergamum that was appointed by John himself. And he died for his faithful witness to Jesus Christ, clinging to Holding to Christ in a place where Satan dwells. Pergamon, the church, was embracing God. To lean in, to believe in, and to trust God. And I don't know about you, but when I hear this about Pergamon, when I hear Christ prays for the church, I've got great hope for this church. Do you? I mean, you hear this like, yeah! Yeah, they're going to do well. Like they are leaning in and embracing God and adhering to who God is and the truth of Jesus Christ, even in a mixed, a wicked place where, shoot, the emperor is worshipped. I mean, John is saying that, yeah, Satan dwells. Satan's place of worship is right there. Like, look at that. But God is here, and because God is here, we need not fear that. And they're leaning into Christ. But there's something going on here in this church that had the beginnings, the root takings of something very bad. The same the word that's used for embracing Christ is also used for some individuals. He says here, but I have a few things against you that you have some there who are embracing, adhering to holding fast to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to throw a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. These you also hold, embrace, adhere to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The same word that's used for holding to and clinging to Christ is now being used over here that some people in the church and that gathering of believers there in Pergamum are starting to, to follow the teachings of Balaam and Balak. What is this Balaam and Balak? Well, 
you got to go back to Numbers. And I, you write this down. Go back to Numbers chapter 22. And, and you read 22 through 25 this week, and you'll get the story of Balaam. And the story of Balaam basically begins, so you got the Jewish people who've left out of Egypt, and they're exodusing, they're traveling through, getting ready to come into the promised land. And there's these people called the Moabites and the Midianites. Well, it's very clear because the reputation of the Israelite people is well known. These people trashed Egypt. Egypt was the power of the world in that day. And the Israelites, God, by the plagues that he brought upon them, trashed Egypt. And then they came out through the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked across, but here come the Egyptians right behind them, and God caused the waves to come down upon the Egyptian army, wiping them out. Do you think that's going to get around the world a little bit? Absolutely. So the reputation of Israel has gone out. Well, the Moabites and the Midianites are scared of them. And so they come to Balaam, who is well known in this region as a prophet of God. But he's a weird one. He's not what you would call a pure-hearted prophet of God. He's a prophet of God for sale. And and the king of Moab comes to Balaam and says, Hey man, we got wealth, we got possessions. I want you to come and pronounce a word, a prophetic word against Israel. So, four different times, the Moabite king tries to convince Balaam to speak out against Israel. But Balaam says, he goes before the Lord, the Lord says, nope, those are my people, don't speak against them, four different times. And so Balaam is not allowed to speak out against the nation of Israel. So you think that, oh, the story's over. But you get to chapter 25 of Numbers and you discover something. Though he wouldn't speak a word out against Israel, Balaam, he went back to the kings and he told them, there's a way you can take them down. You see, they are their own worst enemy. They've got passions and desires that will destroy them. Have them intermarry with your daughters. And when they intermarry with, when they enter into sexual immorality, because God had forbidden the nation of Israel to marry them and become part of them and bring them into their families, and when they marry them, and they did, they'll start worshiping the false idols. They'll start participating in your festivals to worship those false idols and eat these foods of, that took place during these festivals and become idolatrous people against their God. What he's, this is exactly what is taking place here in the church. Can you imagine all the idolatrous activities that was taking place in the town of Pergamum? People were having these festivals and they're telling these Christians, come and join in. And these Christians grew up with this. These Christians were exposed to this false worship, this, this idolatrous worship since they were little kids. And all of a sudden Christ intervenes in their lives, changes their hearts, and now they're trying to step away from this and worship the one true God. But at the same time, they've got this history and this background with this idolatrous worship. And so instead of leaving this, they're starting now to go, I wonder if we can 
intermarry the two. It's what the Nicolaitans were famous for. Taking some of the teachings of God and sprinkling them into this sexually immoral life and saying what is sin and what is wrong is now good. And God hates the Nicolaitans. He's very, very clear about that. The church was called to be pure and set apart for God to be a light to the world. Because remember, we go back to chapter 1 when God was informing the churches that they were to be golden lampstands, they were to be glorifiers of God by carrying the light into the world. But if they start becoming participants in these idolatrous activities, these sexually immoral activities, they start compromising their faith, the light is going to go out. And how does Jesus present himself here? He presents himself as the one with a sword coming out of his mouth. The two-edged sword. The sword that, that demonstrates and divides and it causes judgment. Because the sword is about truth. The sword brings truth. The word of God brings truth. And it reveals the wickedness of men. And the sword that is mentioned here is not a nice little paring knife. It's not a nice little surgical instrument. It is the broad sword of judgment. It's the broad sword of war. It's the good old Braveheart sword that he launches out when he cries freedom. It's the big sword. God will come and he will deal harshly with those that do not repent of this faith. One of the commentators, I forgot which one of the sermon chat folks shared this, Entitled this passage, The Church Infiltrated. I think that's very appropriate. You see, we still have places today in America that are houses of worship. It was very interesting. Dwight was sharing that when he was doing some traveling and vacationing, he went to a presidential library. Lincoln's presidential library. He said it was absolutely fascinating. But he said that when he was there, it felt like it was a place of worship. Like this place was created so people could come here and bask in the glory of Lincoln. And to think that each president has one of these libraries where the people can come and learn about this president and see how great he was. And then I also began to think about Disneyland. Like, your childhood is not complete unless you've been to Disneyland or Disney World. And I think about Universal Studios, and I think about Dollywood, and I think about, you know, like all these different places that we've created around this world that we must go see, we must go participate in. And when you're there, it's like all of the, the merchandising and all the stuff that's there, and you're buying all this junk that you're going to take home that's going to be broken in a week. I mean, it's like... And we worship at these different places. And it's fun. We've gone to Disneyland and we've done those things with our kids. But I watch how many people can become worshipers at those altars. And as we were studying this this week, there's something that struck me. Did you know you and I are trained from birth to worship the counterfeit God? And do you know sometimes you and I are still training our kids to worship the counterfeit God? 
Listen to some of these statements. I've said some of them, so please don't take it that somehow I'm above what I'm telling you. I just want my kids to be good kids. To make good choices. That's a good statement, right? I just had a friend tell that to me this week. And it broke my heart. Because his kids want nothing to do with God. Or pursuing God. But he, what he's basically saying, I, just, I want my kids to be good and make good choices. And so basically what it is, is that moralism and religion will become their God. I just want my kids to be happy. I, you know what? I don't care what they do in life and where they go. I just want them to be happy. I've said it. And so is the basis of hedonism. And hedonism is this really big word that basically I live for my own personal joy and happiness and satisfaction. And when we tell our kids that, that's exactly what we're teaching them to grow up and say, hey, I want to live for my own pleasure. I just want my kids to get a good education. I heard that some last night. I heard statements that made it very clear that people were putting all their hope for their kids' eternity in the education they were going to receive. It's a lot of burden for our poor teachers. It's a burden they can't bear. Education will somehow fill the need of God, will become God. I just want my kids to be safe and healthy. Safe and healthy. We, we, we do that a lot in America today. Some of it is good. I mean, it was really a bad idea that I was standing up in the front seat of my dad's Ford pickup trunk, driving through the pastures, hitting cattle, okay? Trying to get the cattle back into the... It was a bad idea. Okay, I mean, I'm lucky I still have parts of my face attached because I, my head bounced off the dashboard. I wasn't buckled up. You know, we've gotten a little bit smarter. So some of it is just like, hey, that's just good sense. But some of it has swung way over here. Like I was hanging, hanging out with, with one of my friends last night at this dinner and fundraiser, and we were talking about his kids like, we would go out and we'd ride our bikes from dawn till dusk during the summer and mom and dad weren't worried and, and didn't think twice about it. Anybody have that kind of childhood? We're like, we would lie down, okay? We had this a really cool jump and I would lie down and we'd all lie down in rows. You always want to be the first kid. And, and, and people would take their bikes and vroom, vroom, and jump over you. And we're like, you wouldn't even think twice about that right, right now, but today? Oh my goodness. Like somebody's going to jail. Like, well, somebody's going to get sued. No, no joke. And, and, and so we've, we've swung way over here, and we've gone, and we've, we've worshipped the altar of safety and health. And we've we got, we got helicopter parents that are just hovering over their kids. I just want to keep them safe. I'm going 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 to keep them safe. That's kind of the point where they can't even throw, throw snowballs on the playground anymore. I don't know what that's about, but you know. 
You know, I mean, all like all these things, and so it's interesting. And so we're growing up with with you know, kind of a little bit of a weaker generation in some aspects of mental toughness because they just don't go. They're, they're kept safe so much, and we worship at the altar of safety and health. I just want my kids to be respectful of other people's choices. And now on the surface, that sounds like a great statement. I want my kids to be respectful. But your kids need to stand for something. There has to be truth in their lives. We can be respectful while at the same time bringing truth. But when, we, when we're so worried about offending other people, we worship at this altar of acceptance. Like, I'll accept you if you accept me. Like, you don't call me wrong, I won't call you wrong. And we just live in this world of coexistence where people are going to hell but, and trying to do that without offending anybody. Amen. I just don't want my kids to want like I did. We can worship at the altar of materialism. How many of us regularly, perpetually tell our kids, tell our grandkids, tell other people's kids that the most important thing they can do in life is follow Jesus? Surrender their life to Jesus? Knowing they will suffer. Knowing that they may never graduate from college. Knowing that they won't, they may have way less material possessions than you have. Knowing that there may be some needs in their life that they want, desire, and it may not be met because God's got a better plan for them. How many of us desire that for our kids above all the rest? Because if we truly desire that for our kids, we're going to want to see our kids learn to cling to and embrace Jesus. And to cling to and embrace Jesus to say, I want to understand all of life through you. I want to know how to be a friend through you. I want to know how to be a spouse through you, a parent through you, a coworker through you, a boss through you. Like I want to understand everything, Jesus. I don't want. I just want to embrace you and never let go and adhere to and open myself up. Because when Elijah hugged me like that, like he hurts. I had been gone nine months and his dad wasn't present. When he, but in that moment, guess what didn't matter? He was like, bam, dad's here, and that's all that matters. And that's the way we should be with God. It's like, I just want to cling to God if he all that matters. And we want to teach our kids to cling to and rely on Jesus that way. Because if we teach them to cling to and rely on anything else, that's false worship. And the word God speaks, the word Jesus speaks, turns and says, that's false. I'm going to do away with that. In fact, I'm going to war against it. Because I want all of you to embrace all of me.
we struggle with this embracing of the counterfeit God. And I know in this, this room this morning, some of us are convicted. I'm convicted. I've been convicted about this. The great news is what Jesus says in verse 16. He goes, therefore, repent. Repent. I want to read out of 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 13 this morning. This is a powerful statement by Paul to the church at Corinth about what repentance looks like. For even if I made you sad by my letter, I do not regret having written it. Even though I did regret it, for I see that my letter made you sad, though only for a short time. Now I rejoice, not because you were made sad, but because you were made sad to the point of repentance. For you were made sad as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For sadness, as intended by God, produces repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret. But worldly sadness brings about death. For see what this very thing, this sadness as God intended, has produced in you. What eagerness, what defense of yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what deep concern, what punishment. And everything you have proved yourselves to be innocent on this matter. So then even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong or on account of the one who was wronged but to reveal to you your eagerness on behalf before God. Therefore, we have been encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we have rejoiced even more at the joy of Titus, because all of you have refreshed his spirit. As parents, when we have kids that aren't getting along or kids that have messed up, we tell them to say, you're sorry. Don't we? Which is a good thing and kind of a bad thing. Because to say you're sorry is just words out of a person's mouth, not necessarily repentance. You see, what he's talking about here is a grieving of our soul. It's that we see we've sinned and we're so broken by it. And we come to God like, God, I have egregiously wronged you. And it, it, it was wrong. There's no excuse. And I'm grieved by my sin. You know, I think back to the Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That mourning isn't of death, but rather it's of the spiritual death. This idea and understanding that We should mourn our sin, and it's only when we mourn our sin can we be comforted. We see this at the beginning of Revelation, when John is flat before God, and when he's flat before God, and he's fearful of himself in light of the holy God, that God comforts him. He is grieved by his own sinful state, and it's in that moment God can comfort him. Brothers and sisters, if we identify this morning where we are have invited counterfeit gods into our lives... Let's not just be flipping about, I'm sorry, God, I guess I shouldn't have done that. God, I'm broken over the fact that I would invite something into my home, into my family, into my heart that is not you. 
And I repent of that and I want to lean on you. I want to jump into your arms once again and adhere to you because you can't hold on to God and hold on to something else. The sword that he brings says you're either holding on to God or you're holding on to something else. And I know in our congregation this morning, in a place as affluent as Shalan is, that we are struggling with worshiping false gods. If you're sitting here saying this morning, in my life, I'll be happy if, I'll be satisfied when I get that, life would be so much better if I had that. Guess what? You've bought into the realm of counterfeit God. You're worshiping something else. Versus I am completely, totally satisfied in Jesus Christ. It is in life for him and hearing to his teaching and his revelation of who he is that gives me fullness and completeness of life. I want nothing else. That we see everything we have and everything that we are through that lens that we're children of God first. He says, repent. It's just that easy. But it's not a flippant repentance. For I am coming to see you soon and will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. It is a complete lie from the pit of hell that says you can sit there and walk some imaginary line between devotion to God and devotion to false gods. And God says, Jesus says, I am in the business of waging war against those that want to cling to false gods. Why? So that people will repent and have this amazing life in Jesus Christ. And John 10.10, it says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus comes to bring us abundance of life and he's willing to cut off and cut out the bad stuff so we can have the better. And what awaits those that repent? What awaits those who cling to Jesus? It is a beautiful picture. Revelation 2.17 The one who has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give them some of the manna, hidden. And I will give to him a white stone, and upon the stone a name written that no one knows except the one who receives it. Receives manna, spiritual nourishment from God. Notice the contrast between food sacrifice to idols and manna. And you, you may be in your head going, didn't Paul say it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. What the author of Revelation, what Revelation is getting about is, is not just this food. It's not the food that is wicked, but it's the festival that the one would have participated in to get this food. They would have had to done idolatrous acts and worshiped a false god to get this food, to be part of this eating. Versus the spiritual nourishment. Worship something that is dead and gives no life and leads to only devastation versus getting the spiritual nourishment that sustains for all of eternity. See, that's the reward that's waiting for those who cling to Jesus. This spiritual nourishment, this, this satisfaction in Jesus Christ for all of life. 
And this white stone, now, oh my goodness, you want to talk about blowing up commentaries. I mean, 10 pages, 15 pages of, of speculation of what this white stone relates to, okay? So I'm not going to sit here and claim to be smarter than a lot of these very intelligent men, okay, who read Latin and, 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 and Coptic and a lot of other language that I have, you know, no idea about. So let's go to the text. Because one of the, the exegetical methods that we adhere to is when, 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 the, when we're unclear by a previous reference, and we're unclear by previous reference in the Old Testament, then we look to the text and go off what the text says. Well, we know white. We know pure. A pure white stone. A brilliant stone. Permanency. Foundational. That is eternal. And on this stone is written a name. And it's a name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. I forgot who I was talking with this week, but it just struck me. God giving us this when we come into glory, identifying this name, his name, this name that he has given to us, and that when we read this name and when we see this name, we get to proclaim this is who I was made to be. This name. This name. This is the name that God is giving to me. This is who I always was intended to be. And I get to praise God because now I have the name that I was always supposed to have. But the evil one, when he came and he messed things up and we entered into sin and devastation and destruction, I lost that name. I never gained that name. But now because of what Jesus Christ has done for me and faith in him and him alone, I get this name. Isn't that cool to think about those who cling to and adhere to God get this spiritual nourishment and this name, this identification. And what does the name represent? Identity. That we are identified as the family of God for all of eternity. That's who we are. But thanks to this letter, this letter reminds us that I get to live in light of that identity I don't even fully know yet right now. By clinging to Jesus Christ. By not letting false gods sneak in. And pull me away from holding to Jesus Christ. It is the great reward. John spoke up this week during our sermon chat. And he said one, something very profound. He said through these letters to the churches, Jesus is freeing the church to live for him. In Ephesus, he was freeing them from legalism and morality. In Smyrna, he was freeing them from the fear of what the devil and the world could do to them. And here, he's freeing us from the counterfeit gods that we're clinging to instead of the true God, Jesus Christ. I have heard my whole life that these letters were letters of condemnation and judgment to the churches. But I think for the first time in my life, I understand what they're there for. He's setting us free to live for him. His judgment will come for those that don't repent and believe. But our loving just and compassionate God desires all our hearts to be set free to live for him to repent and believe please join with me in prayer Father God thank you so much for your word
Lord, we, because of our flesh, because of this world, because of the evil one and his forces, we're quick to adopt, adopt counterfeit gods and false identities in this world. And as sinful parents and sinful grandparents, we struggle with passing those identities and those false gods onto our kids. And we confess, Lord God, that we, don't, we are guilty of that and we don't want to continue in that. And I pray, God, we would, our hearts would be broken today. We wouldn't justify it. We wouldn't say, well, but that situation, or, or well, but that's what somebody else, well, I'm doing better than someone else. But rather, God, we would see your standard and we'd see our identity in you and want to live for that, to, to know that you're nourishing us with your manna even right now. The word of God is nourishing our hearts so that we can live holy, devoted lives for Christ. And we look forward to this name we don't even know yet. But a name that will change everything. Let us, even though we don't know that name, start living in light of that name because of Jesus right now. May we be a people, Lord God, that truly repent and are broken over our sin. And in our brokenness, you are there to comfort us. Thank you, Father. For Jesus, for the family of God, and for freedom to live for him right now. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Are we time to celebrate what God has done in our lives this week? Don, I see that hand. We'll come right back to you, Lois. Well, where do I start? Well, my life for the last 20 years has been around being a caregiver. Well, a few months ago, 20 years of caregiver came to an end. And I got to thinking, what is my purpose in life? Well, about two years ago, Cindy Knight came to me and said, Don, there's a new program in the elementary school called the Grandpa Project. I think you'd be great at it. And uh, I don't know about that. Well, I'll go to try it for once. Well, it's worked out for me. And I've been doing that for the last two years. Go in on a Friday afternoon, and I'll do something like uh, make a potato battery for the kids. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I told them how to read Roman numerals. I showed them how a compass worked. Let's see, last week, uh, oh, Longitude and latitude on the map. That's going to be part of a project for next week, finding where the Titanic is sunk from the longitude and latitude. The kids love that. But there's been a... Noticing there are some kids in the class that have an attitude problem. And something in the back of my mind kept saying, Don... Maybe you could address this. I keep saying, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. And then all of a sudden, it's more has changed. He's telling me, God, telling me, Don, this is something you can address to the whole class. 
I wish I could bring our religious values out of class. But I keep saying, I don't know if I can do this. But he keeps saying, yes, you can. I feel like there's a burning bush around there someplace. Okay, that's the end of chapter one, maybe, or maybe just the preface of chapter one, but I'll see what he has in mind for me. Seems like I have a new project in life, doing something for these kids. So um, over the past, past few years, Michael and I have had um, some financial issues, and we've been trying to pay off some debt. And, um, and just recently, he has been getting, because of God, he has been getting some amazing jobs. And in two weeks, we are going to pay off one of our biggest debtors that we have been trying to pay off in almost five years. So, never tell me you're thinking about sharing a God story before serving. <laughs> well, I'm just ser- sincerely hoping that what happened to me does not happen to you this week. Um, and uh, I, I have to confess that I feel very ashamed before uh, myself and before my wife. And uh, it's simply that um, I got caught up in a scam. And a uh, pretty costly scam. And uh, it was that I saw something on my uh, uh, email that said that uh, somebody had bought a $2,100 uh, television um, and uh, so they this was from supposedly from Amazon and they were saying did you buy this and I called the number but that number is not the right number it's not Amazon at all so anyway uh I spent a couple of three hours trying to uh, pay to to get my money back and all that. Foolish, 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 foolish. And uh, I learned a few lessons, I think, from this. Uh, one of them is, and this is one that I think can apply to all of us. It made me realize that as I was ashamed before my wife, because we have a joint bank account and everything, so she's affected as well as I. And uh, and then to be able to face you people and say I was stupid is a hard thing to do. But uh, I also began to realize that in my shame, my sense of shame, uh, bows my head. But as we sin against a holy, wonderful, loving God... That same shame, that worst shame, should be before us. And uh, so that's one of the lessons that I can pass on to you. Don't allow any sin to go unconfessed. Be the, allow the shame of offending God to uh, 
just drive you to confession and repentance. Okay, that's that's the sermon part of this. But uh, anyway, uh, an, another lesson I learned is that we have a wonderful, loving fellowship here. Uh, since uh, I'm an elder and there are other elders that became aware of this, immediately there was uh, this sense of, of covering for me and uh, just a loving response. And I'm so grateful for that. Now, um, since word travels quickly, it got down to Dennis and Linda down in California. And uh, so they called, and uh, something God kind of spoke to Dennis was a great blessing. He said, have Tom call up uh, the credit card company and see what can be arranged. And uh, so I told them this, the situation. I told the credit card company the uh, situation. And within five minutes, I had all of that money returned. Uh, and that's, uh, that's one of the great treasures. But the greatest treasure has been the uh, fellowship, the brotherhood that we have. And a verse came to me as I was thinking of this. It's in 1 John 1, 7, where it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And I'm sure that's with God as well, but we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We do have a wonderful fellowship here. Let's, I guess we can say, take advantage of it. And uh, I'm so grateful. And uh, so uh, don't allow foolishness to knock you down. It, it doesn't have to. God's grace is greater than that. Okay. I'm not going to sit on the floor anymore just to get your attention. <laughs> Today is one year ago that I moved into Heritage Heights. My church family went through all this preparation with me, praying with me, and I have a man right here, Dwight Keegan. It was the biggest snowstorm of the whole year on the 9th of February last year, but Dwight got to my house at 8 o'clock that morning, just like he promised, he and Jeff made loads through the snow. People at Heritage were shocked that we were moving in. But God's been so good to me, and like Tom says, it's the church family here that keeps it going, no matter what a small problem we have or a big one. You're all here for us, and I thank God for that. So thank you, Dwight, that you got me moved in last year. And Kathy, I helped Tammy unload everything. So. Thanks to my church family. <laughs> 